when you don't know what to say or what to do. That's kind of, if you're here looking for Andy, he's homesick. You get a text Saturday morning, and then you're in your office here at church at 820 praying, God, now what do we do? So there are a lot of prayers going up, a lot of things scrambling, saying, okay, I don't have joy to make my PowerPoint slide, so I've got to do that and get everything ready. So um, sorry, if you're here for Andy, you can leave and come back next time. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to talk about something you notice on there, living in the real world. And I was thinking about last night, uh, as I was up at 2 o'clock, worried about this morning, shouldn't be worried, it's a sin, I know, but eating barbecue chips, that fixes everything, so eating barbecue chips, um, thinking about sleepwalking, and I'm going, man, I remember some times, now I'm going to embarrass my grown son, because he's here this morning, but I remember the time, now it wasn't yesterday, it was just, you know, when he was little, like up here the kids, so it was when you were real tiny, I remember going to bed, and my clock radio was on. I'm going, why is my clock radio on? And then I noticed something wet all over my nightstand. So I called Cherry up and said, what is it? And we, oh, he went to the bathroom. On, he was sleepwalking. And he thought he was in the bathroom. And he, at least he flushed. He pressed the thing, and our radio came on. He went back. He didn't remember it, you know? You remember, son, going at my, in my no, Dad. I think it was subconsciously getting back because I had to punish him for something. But uh, remember Cherry, now my wife, she talks in her sleep, and she doesn't remember, and I have fun with that, believe it, you know me, I have some awful good fun with that one, but then she gets mad at me when she wakes up, but the one, I very rarely sleepwalk, but I did one night, back in our days, early days, we had a water bed, hippies, we had a water bed, and it has a protective thing on the side of the frame, so I got up one night, this frame is about six feet long, I picked this big padded wooden thing, and I'm smacking the bed, like this. She screams, gets out of bed because I'm killing bugs is what I'm doing. And she wakes me up because she says, you're going to whack me. Good thing I didn't, you know. Man kills wife in sleepwalking. Oh, that was tried, but it didn't happen. But anyhow, I'm whacking and I'm going, oh my goodness. I, I, I don't remember doing that. But sleepwalking. There was a woman I read. There was all kinds of stories about that. But there was a woman that would get up at night, get in her car, drive on the highway to her brother's house, honk the horn, and drive back home. And she wouldn't remember. Now, her friends actually tied her to her bed every night so she wouldn't do it. That's how they corrected that. But for you that like to eat, just sleepwalk at night. You can eat. There's people that do that. They don't remember eating, going to the refrigerator and eating food, like I did last night at barbecue chips. I don't remember that. They're all over the floor, but I got caught. But sleepwalking, people do that, don't they? Have you ever done that? Have anybody in here want to confess that you've sleptwalked or done things like that? But then I was thinking about sleepwalking. I was talking about sleepwalking spiritually. I went, hmm, what about spiritual sleepwalking? Do we do that? Well, as believers, sometimes in our life, we have a tendency to spiritually sleepwalk through life sometimes as believers. Without realizing it, we become out of touch with reality. And that's the key word we're going to talk about, reality. God wants us to live in the real and have an impact on the world that we live in. But that old nasty thing that the Bible talks about, the flesh, the old sin nature, gets in our way. So we're going to start first, before we talk about three churches that Paul addresses, the church of Corinth, the church in Rome, and the church at Ephesus, we're going to talk first about that flesh, all right? It kind of builds on what I preached about last week about Jude and Jude. Our flesh 
wants to live in dreamland. It really does. It wants to live in dreamland. And here's how it does that. Our flesh demands control. Our flesh demands control. God is real. And he wants us as believers to live in reality. Turn to Hebrews 11.6. We're going to go back and forth, so whatever means you have to look at the Bible, get that ready, and go to Hebrews 11.6, a little verse that many of us memorized and we know, but I want to just point it out here this morning. And it's a little verse that says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now that sounds agreeable, doesn't it? But living in reality is not something you just decide to do. Okay, I'm just going to live in reality. It, it, you just don't do it, decide to do it. It is a lifelong battle, folks. Lifelong battle made up of daily decisions to follow God and the power of the Spirit. Boy, I could just take that, and, and Wednesday night we talked about pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit last session, and I could just run with that, but we're not going to. But look at Romans chapter 6. Go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to see some verses here talking about this and elaborating on that. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read 11 through 14. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead in, to sin. That's something that we have to do. We have to consider ourselves that. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. We have to do that. We have to stop doing that as instruments of unrighteousness. But here's something else we do. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, as your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are under law, not under law, but under grace. So as we read that, we've got to flip over to chapter 7 as well. And this is the famous chapter where Paul said he struggled with the flesh and the spirit and all that. And, and, and look at verse 22 and 23. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, that mind that you have to buffet, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he says, wretched man that I am. So you see what he's talking. Because as sinners, people believe that lies, the lies that there is no higher person than self and no higher purpose than personal satisfaction, pleasure, and recognition. That's what they believe. Even as believers, folks, sometimes we believe that. Our, our flesh, or the sin nature that Scripture talks about here, um, it, it believes these lies that, that we try to make our own reality. Our flesh desperately wants to, us to live according to them. It is committed to the lies, never wavering in its dedication to devotion. As a result, our flesh, our sin nature, will create its own world and call it reality if we choose to live according to our flesh. There's a verse in Isaiah 53, 6. If you want, you can turn there very quickly. But we're going to answer the question, what clear message does, our, does this verse give about our flesh, our sin nature? When Isaiah 53, 6, it says, and you may have memorized this in EE, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own ways, but he has laid upon him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all, to, and it falls on him. So what that says about our own sin nature is everyone has turned away from God 
and thinks his own way is true and best. That's our problem with living in reality. In Proverbs 12, 15, it says this verse, and we're going to answer the question, why is the person who thinks his way is right called a fool? Right here. Because he puts his confidence in what is untrue. It says there, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right, what? In his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. So the word reality, we could change, we could take the word way in both those verses and put the word reality there, substitute the word reality, because everyone creates his own reality. He believes it's true and turns from God. The ultimate reality, he is our ultimate reality, only God is. Without God's intervention, folks, oh my goodness, on our behalf, we would all be lost forever. So we're going to look at something now, the flesh, a little bit deeper. Our flesh wants to live in dreamland, our, our flesh demands control, but also our flesh creates false realities. That's where we really get in trouble sometimes as believers. After placing our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our, our eternal life, for our salvation, we as believers, we should know better than to create our own reality. We should know better, but we do it anyway. For some reason, we do that. We can put our reasons for creating false categories uh, and realities into five little categories, and we're going to go through those briefly. Number one, to be in control. <laughs> Some of us want to create a world in which we are at the controls. We are controlling. We want to call the shots in our lives and determine what is right and wrong, apart from the Word of God. We want to do that. Our reality makes it okay for us to write all the rules to our own liking. But God does not have the ultimate authority in the world we create for ourselves. He doesn't have the ultimate authority. We create it. That's the first thing. The second thing is to escape responsibility. You know, other, others of us want to, to create a reality that excuses us from the responsibility of being a believer. We see living the Christian life as, as a burden and perhaps even a bore. This life is such a bore. When we consider living for Christ we see a list of restrictions and demands instead of a person. When I was raised up in a fundamental church, that's what it was, the rules and the re regulations. You know, the old saying, I know you've heard this before, if there's hair on your ears or sin in your heart type of thing, you have to wear a suit to every service of church. You have to have just one certain Bible version, that's it. You know, you have to give a certain amount of money. All the rules and regulations, and you just check them off, and you were good. Instead of, I love Jesus, he loves me. That personal relationship doing what is best, right, and good for the person you love, which is Christ. That's what it means to love somebody. You do what's best, right, and good for the person you love. I love Jesus, so what do I want to do? I want to please him. I want to uh, adore him. I want to worship him. I want to satisfy myself through him only and him alone. But our reality, it explains away the demands of being a Christian. We are too busy, not talented enough, or too overwhelmed with life to contribute to the cause of Christ. The third one is to gain recognition without commitment. Now, this is interesting because some of us create a world in which spiritual, spirituality is just a show. We seek recognition for being spiritual under false pretenses. We want people to praise us for what they think we are. But they really don't know us, though. They really don't. We appear to be a good Christian, worthy of recognition when we are privately living in sin. We are professionals at jumping through the, 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 at the, jumping through the right hoops, saying the right words, and doing the right things when those uh, we want to impress are watching. We might even accept leadership 
positions in a church to bolster our reputation as a godly Christian. And you know what helps us? Social media. I can go on Facebook, and I can be anybody I want. I can present this wonderful person, and my life may be in a position where I'm leaving my wife, I'm leaving my husband, I'm abusive to my children, I'm abusive to others, I'm this kind of person, and I can present on, on the media like, what a wonderful person I am. And everybody thinks, oh, isn't he such a wonderful guy? And the whole time, having that sin in my life of not repentance and things, not really knowing me. The fourth one is to, rele- to, to relieve guilt over sin. This is a big one. Relieving guilt is another reason for creating our own reality. We enjoy sin, sin for a season, and don't feel and, and don't like to feel guilty or convicted when we sin. We don't want that. That's why we twist Scripture. So we make up our own world in which our sin is okay. It's okay. Perhaps we see our, our background or our upbringing or our life circumstances as legitimate reasons for our thoughts and actions. We see ourselves as a special case that God will understand. Come on. He understands. It's, I've been abused, or my dad didn't say he loved me, or, or I was this or that. God will understand. That's why he's okay with what I'm doing. The last one is to excuse indifference and inactivity. There are those of us who think we simply don't matter to God and that he doesn't care what we do in our little world that we live in. It's our little world. We imagine a God who is too big to bother with us. He's too big. So we do our own thing in life as if it doesn't matter in the world, and and, and it doesn't matter in the end of things. We live as if God is far away. He's so far away. He's so busy. I'm just a little speck of sand. He's too distracted to keep track of of us and, and myself personally. We're indifferent towards spiritual things and, and inactive in God's work. So here's the flesh. It wants to live in the dreamland. It wants to be in control, and it false, our flesh creates false realities. It wants to be in control, to escape responsibility, to gain recognition without commitment, to relieve guilt over sin, and to excuse indifference and inactivity. But God calls us to live in reality, to live in the real. And that's what he's going to do. We're going to talk about that now. There's three churches that we're going to look at. And, and God directed Paul to write to these three different churches about living in the real. And obviously, as, you, as we read this, it, this is not something new, all right? It, it's not a new problem. It, it's something they dealt with. It's something we're dealing with. So the three passages is 1 Corinthians 15. So go to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go there first. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be there for a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15. Because what he wants here in this church at Corinth, we know this was a letter of rebuke to them because of what they were living in and accepting and everything like that. It's, it's a wake-up call to awake to righteousness. Awake to righteousness. So let me read, starting with verse 30 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We are, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I de- die daily. What a thing for Paul to do. He dies daily of himself. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts morals. Great verse. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
So here at the Church of Corinth, some in the Church of Corinth had created reality that made it okay for them to be involved in indulgent sins. Paul addressed the church here with a wake-up call. Paul put his life on the line daily, as he said, for the sake of the gospel and the doctrine of the resurrection in particular, verses 30 and 31 that we read. Also, it's interesting, Paul even fought with beasts at Ephesus, perhaps a reference to literally wild animals, because you read what Paul went through and all the things that he was happened to him, and that is a possibility, and a lot of theologians agree it was just wild animals that he had fought with. He willingly, though, lived in jeopardy every day of his life because God is real and worth living and dying for. That's the point. Like I said last week, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He is worth it. He is worth it. God is worth it. Paul said that. Paul's life of jeopardy stood in stark contrast to the indulgent lives of some of the Corinthians that live, were living at this time at this church. The indulgent Corinthians, as we read there, rejected a future resurrection of believers. Why? In order to excuse their sin. They created their own reality in which what they did with their bodies did not matter. If God was not going to resurrect their bodies, then <laughs> they concluded that their behavior and, and their bodies would affect neither the present nor their future. They believed they should live for pleasure now, for perhaps tomorrow, in verse 32, they would die. They were hedonists through and through. And here Paul was saying, I have to address this. So in verses 3 through 8, he wanted to, to, to say something about the resurrection. We're not going to read all that, because I read it earlier in Easter, but, but we're going to answer the question, how established is the reality of Christ's resurrection? Well, if you look at verses 3 through 8 of that portion, uh, verse 6 and verse 8, over 500 people saw Jesus after the resurrection. And in verse 8, Paul did. And there was others in there as, in that portion of Scripture. I don't know about you, but if 500 people saw all this, I would believe it. I would believe it. 500 witnesses, you, your case is shut. Boom, gone. You won the case. And this is what, though, Paul was pointing out to them. So then he went and he said, okay, that's proving Jesus' resurrection. Let's look at verse 20 and 23. What is the important connection between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of believers? Christ is the first fruits of believers in these verses who have died. Christ will raise them up because he rose from the dead. So if, if there's a denying of a future resurrection of believers, it's denying the reality of Christ's resurrection. And the two are forever linked together. You can't separate that. The Corinthians were bold in creating a, ra a reality that denied the resurrection and that it stuck, struck at the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel, Christ was born by a virgin. Okay, He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life. Then he was betrayed, he was crucified, paid the penalty of the on the cross. Tetelestai, it is paid in full, it is finished. He did that for us, for the penalty of sin. Then he was buried. Then the third day he resurrected. And he said, I have to leave to send the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to come so you can walk in the Spirit, so you can have power, so you can understand the Word of God. So then he resurrected and the Holy Spirit came out. But he's at the right hand of the Father. And as a, a Galilean wedding feast goes on, this is what happened when the, he was in the Lord's Supper. He said, this is the new covenant I've made with you. The new covenant. So there's a covenant in a Galilean and, and, and wedding. There was a covenant made between the, the families. And then the, the groom would go away. 
Jesus went away. Why? To prepare a place. He went to the Father's house to prepare a place, just like the groom does in a wedding over in those days. He went away to prepare a place. The bride then would keep herself ready, pure, living her life, waiting for the groom, not knowing when he was coming. So Christ is going to, the Father's going to say to Jesus Christ, go get the church, the bride, bring him up for the wedding feast of the Lamb, the Bema seat. And while that's going on, the wrath of God will be happening down here in tribulation that we are not going to have to go through. The wrath of God to prepare for the second coming of Christ. This is what it's all about. And you have to accept Christ as your Savior to be a part of that. That's what he was trying to get the Corinthians. Obviously, Paul took their actions seriously and called on the rest of the church at Corinth to respond. And that's what he's saying. Those who denied the, re the resurrection were corrupt and, and, in a sense, contagious. The Corinthians believers who embraced the true doctrine of the resurrection needed to separate themselves from those who denied the resurrection. That's why verse 33, bad company corrupts morals. And you can use that verse in a lot of ways. But here, he was saying, Get away from those that don't believe in the resurrection. It'll, it'll be contagious to you. They were in danger of embracing the hedonistic outlook on life if they continue to fellowship with the evil ones in the church. Paul told the Corinthians to wake up to righteousness and resist living in a dream world. We're going to look at that verse in a minute. They could not just make up reality because reality is based in God's person. All attempts at reality outside of God <laughs> are dreams and lies, folks. Satan saying, uh, eh, yeah, you can do that. God, come on. God didn't really say dot, 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 as I shared last week. To create a new reality would, would be to change God, and that cannot happen. In, in, uh, for Italians, Malachi, but I call it Malachi, 3.6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. In Malachi 3.6. In Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27, I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days, your years are throughout all generations. Of old you found the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So what do these verses teach us about the changeableness of God. God could never change. His nature demands he stays the same. He could not become bad because he is holy. And he could not become any holier because he is already perfectly holy. He can't love anymore because he unconditionally loves the world. This is God. He does not change. But we have to change him to fit our reality. And that's what's happening in the world around, especially with believers. Paul went on to point out that the Corinthians needed to resist living in a dream world because some did not have a knowledge of God. So here are the Corinthian believers. They were God's vessel for shining the light of the gospel before the lost. If they as God's vessel were filthy, if they were sinful, unrepentant, then the gospel's light would be dim and rendered ineffective. They needed to live righteously before the wicked. Look at verse 34, 1 Corinthians 15. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Just stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So how then should the Corinthians have responded to this, that verse 34? How should they do that? How should they do that? Well, they should have embraced biblical realities, starting with the resurrection and lived according to them. 
So the dreaming Corinthians, as they were dreaming, making their own reality, were entertaining sinful indulgences instead of concentrating on winning the loss to Christ. They were enjoying fleeting moments of pleasure instead of sharing eternal life with those facing eternity in the torments of the lake of fire. Imagine this in your mind. The Corinthians watching unbelievers at the great white throne plunging into the lake of fire as they call after them. I'm so sorry you are about to experience agonizing eternal torment. I was too busy living in, in, in my own dream world to tell you about the reality of eternity with God. Of course, such a scene would never happen, but it is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to consider. So wake up is what he told them. Now, the Romans are a similar message. Go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Here we're going to see a little bit different thing about what Paul was saying. Romans 13. And here he says, put on the armor of light. Wake up, put on the armor of light. Paul gave the Romans a similar message in the dream world. So let's read verses 11 through 14. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not curtain carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord. You have to do that. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. So here Paul called on the Romans to awake out of sleep as the reality of Christ's return grew near, verse 11 and 12. Now the night here refers to the present time when Christ is not on earth and Satan is working. So, and we know Satan is working overtime. The day that is at hand is the return of Christ. In a sense, the, the return of Christ is always at hand because Christ promised re his return is at any moment. Revelation 22, 7 and 12, it says, Jesus himself said, Behold, I am coming quickly. He is coming quickly. We are to be living with urgency, folks, because our time to serve God and reach others for Christ in this age is limited. Think about it. It's already July 4th. What happened to the six months of, of 2021? You know, and, and they say, well, when you get older, time passes quicker. No, it doesn't. It's still 24-7, 365, whether you're five years old or, or 85. Time is time. You can't add or delete from it. But doesn't it seem like it's going by quicker and quicker? I don't know why. Maybe because we're busier and busier. But before long, the rapture is going to happen, we're going to be out of here, and then tribulation. So Paul, again, used the day and night here in, 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 to the Roman church contrast as he described how the Romans should live in Christ's light of Christ's return. He told them, cast off, do something. Cast off the works of darkness, such as carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, and envying. Now, all these six things could be kind of put down in three little categories. It could be gluttony, impurity, and temper. So the Romans here, in, in 13.12, he says, put on the armor of light. In Ephesians 6, doesn't he talk about also to that church about the armor of God? <coughs> putting that on, excuse me. The armor of light would keep them from putting the works of darkness back on. Put off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. That will keep us from doing that. Now, Paul's instructions here to the, to the church at Corinth and Romans, it echoed in, in the church in in Ephesus. So go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. This is the last one we're going to talk about, Ephesians 5. 
I don't have much time, so we're going to kind of go through this. Here Paul instructs in verse 8, the second part there, he says, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk in the light. Walk as children of light. He says in verse 9 as well that goodness and righteousness and truth characterize those people who walk as children of light. And conversely, he says, children of disobedience are characterized by whole litany of sins found in verses 3 through 5, which we don't have time to read. Then in verse 6, though, he says, God's wrath comes on those who walk as children of disobedience. So here, the reason he shares that is Paul wanted the Ephesians to find that fact motivating of, of those that walk in disobedience and then we that are to walk in the light and to share the light. If they did not shine the light of God, love to the lost, then how would the lost escape the darkness and God's coming wrath that he talked about in verse 6? Paul pointed something to the role of the Spirit. And that's, I wish we had, that's another message. That's the Spirit of making it possible for us as a believer to walk in the light in verse 9. Because without the Holy Spirit, we can't walk in the light. And it's commanded, walk in the Spirit, as he says later on. Walk in the Spirit. That's the only thing that we can do to make sure that our flesh is not in control in our old sin nature. Then he says that goodness and righteousness and truth is the fruit. Notice he says the fruit that comes from living by the Spirit. Goodness here, as, as we read that, is showing love to others. And that's what we need to do, showing love to others. Righteousness refers to our character from God's perspective. God sees us through Christ who is righteous. We're not righteous on our account. We're counted as righteous because of Christ. Other people, though, that we live around will see our righteous character in our actions. There's a difference there. Truth here is essentially reality, is what the Word of God is saying. So we live according to what? God's Word, not our Word. The source of truth when we live by the Spirit. The more, Paul said, the more we walk in the light, the more in touch we become with reality. We learn what is acceptable to the Lord. I love this verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, trying to learn, in my version, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Other versions say, learn what is acceptable to the Lord. We have to learn that. How do you learn it? Through the Word of God. And it begins to show in our lives. So as we walk in the light, our lives will be in stark contrast as we look at this portion of Scripture to the darkness around us. And Paul said something that strikes me funny. Look at verse 11. Paul told the Ephesians here to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So as we walk in the light and live in reality, we will expose people's lies for what they truly are. The realities they have created for themselves will be shown to be lies. Now, here's what happens. If we do that, you're haters. You people are unloving. You're hypocrites. You're, hypocr you're legalistic. Hypocrites. I've been accused of being a hypocrite. And you know what happens? In Revelation it says that Satan goes before God accusing the brethren, which is us. Christ says, no, 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 I paid for that sin. But here's how this works. A believer that's living in sin that doesn't want to repent They'll say, oh, remember what Mike did about five years ago? And they'll bring that up. And I'll say, yeah, but there's a difference between what I did five years ago and what you're doing right now. Five years ago, the Spirit convicted me. I repented of that sin. 
and then I'm starting to mature in Christ and start on my path of maturity again. You haven't repented. You're still living in sin. There's a difference. So don't point this out because this is taken care of. But they do that, don't they? Believers do that to us as believers. Look what he's doing. And, and think about that. So Satan says, oh, look what Mike did five years. He took care of that. But what if Satan goes up and says, hey, look what he did yesterday. And I'm still not repentant of that. Now, Christ says, I still pay for that sin. But then he turns to me and say, hey, dummy, stop sinning. Why are you still sinning? Don't you realize that what you're doing is, is, is headed for destruction? It's headed for a life, miserable life, because you're not repenting of your sin? You think that's the answer to life? You think you're creating that reality? You think that's really reality? No. Repent of it. Stop sinning. Come back and get on the right path again. Now, the sin's taken care of, but my fellowship with Christ is, is harmed. That's what that... But boy, won't unbelievers and believers use that against us? It's amazing. Don't let them. If they tell you, remember that you... Say, <laughs> I repented of that. Don't, don't try to use that to prove your reality of sinning is okay. So just keep that in mind. So as we look at this, what are some of the lies the lost order their lives by? Well, here it is. Life is about getting as much pleasure as possible. Let's get it now because once I'm gone, I'm gone. Now they even, the, the, the media and the TV, they take that into he to hell that you can have a good party at hell. Life is about becoming a good person. That's all I need to be, good person and God, I'm okay with God. Life is about following and fully realizing your dreams. Oh, I just got to realize my dreams. Life is about finding your place. Life is about taking control of your life back. I've heard that recently. Got to take control of my life back. I'm doing that. <laughs> no, I want the Spirit to control my life, not me, because I'll mess it up. These are the things, the lies that they're saying. And we have an obligation, according to what Paul said here, to expose unfruitful works of darkness. God expects our lives to serve that person, that purpose. So how might we do that, okay? How might we, believer, expose unfruitful works of darkness? By showing unconditional love. Yes, we love the sinner, hate the sin, but we've got to show that unconditional love. We, we must, just like God does. By living a pure life. Not a perfect life, but a pure life. If you sin, repent of it, stop sinning, and move on. By praising God in all circumstances, no matter what they are, no matter what you're going through, praising Him for that. By sharing the gospel, the true gospel. By emulating Christ. And by living with joy and peace in our lives. This is what brings us to reality. This is what Paul was trying to say to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians. Wake up from your sleep, believers. Wake up, because things are happening. And I say for us, wake up because it's only going to get worse. And Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy about that. Last days, this is what's going to happen. And is it not happening? You know, I, I could share something with you, but I'm not going to because I might embarrass the person that told me. It's nobody here, it's somebody else, but they had to leave their job because of what the company's allowing now with same-sex things going on. They said, we, we just can't be a part of this anymore. They had to leave and, and, and quit because that's where we're headed, folks. And that's okay. Did you know that Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed because of homosexuality? Did you know that? I had a pastor, I heard a pastor say, no, it was because they wanted to rape the men. That's why it was destroyed, because the men wanted to rape the men. It wasn't because of same-sex love or marriage. 
because they just wanted to rape. That, that was why it was destroyed. This is how people create their own reality and excuse their sin. And we're going to be called haters. We're going to be called. Isn't it amazing that our belief system, our scripture says, love your enemies? But there's a belief system that says, you don't believe like them, they're infidels, kill them. Now they try to cover that up, but it says it, read it in their, in their, in their, their book that they have. There's others say, you can have two or three wives. I can't handle one, let alone two or three. But you want to go somewhere in Utah, you can have two or three wives. Go for it if you. But they twist scripture and says it's okay. This is what's happening in our world today. This is what's going on. And we've got to awaken from our sleep and call it out by living a pure life. The, the little summary here, uh, wake to righteousness, put on the armor of light, and walk in the light. Uh, Chris will put it up there. It's back to reality. It all kinds of summarizes. Be honest with God about your life. Take your sins seriously. Block out time for prayer and renewal of your relationship with God. Put on the belt of truth by studying God's word. Strap on the sword of the spirit by memorizing verses. Jesus used the word. He was the word to, to fight against the temptation of Satan. We can do that by memorizing verses. Seek godly counsel when needed and find an accountability partner. Living in the real. Father, thank you for this very, very simple but, and, and, Father, not profound message, but, Lord, it's from your word, and that's what makes it profound. I pray, Father, for those that are here, if they are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if they haven't got off the broad road to hell and destruction, to the narrow to life eternal, help them to do that today. We're not promised tomorrow. Lord, hear our dear brother Matt as we pray for him, Lord. He, he's, he's in a coma. He, he doesn't know anything, Father, right now. We don't know if he's going to survive. Lord, that could happen to us. Lord, you could do the rapture right now, and all those that do not believe here this morning would remain. I'm not trying to scare people, but Lord, maybe we need to scare people out of a lake of fire because they don't realize where they're headed. They've got to get on the life, narrow road to life eternal. Lord, help us to help them understand the true gospel. Lord, help us, we that are believers, help us to awaken from the sleep that maybe we've been in and start looking at our life and analyzing our life and see if we are letting our flesh control us, to see if we're justifying our sin, to see if we're making excuses for our lifestyle and our sin and, and twisting reality and, and trying to change God and, and putting God into our uh, way of life and making God fit in instead of us fitting into God's way of life through Scripture. Thank you for this morning, Lord. We pray for Brother Andy, helping to be well, Lord, helping to, to, to not be uh, sick, Lord, to just recover from what he's going through. Be with us now, Father, as we depart and celebrate our country, Lord. We do pray for our president. We pray for those in leadership, Father, down to our local guys. Lord, we know what's happening. We know that our leaders have taken God out of our country. We know they have taken prayer out of our country. Father, it won't be long before our money will say, not in God we trust. It'll say just something else about America. Lord, I pray for this country. I pray that we would come back to God, that, Father, you would help us. Lord, we need to get back to you. We need to have you taught again in our public schools about salvation. We need to have that in our prisons to really rehabilitate prisoners, Lord. Jesus is the only way. Look at Linwood. He knows that. He shared that. He taught that. He lives that. Jesus rehabilitates, nothing else. So we ask you, Father, to help us to awaken from our sleep 
as we go out now and celebrate our country. We still love this country. We still believe in America, but Lord, help us to speak up and to go forth in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand up with you in the second verse. When we cry for freedom, you tore down the wall. The weight of our burdens, you carry it all. Our fears and our failures hang dead on the cross. Oh, you cannot be stopped. Great.